This is Green Seas, the podcast by Tradewinds about the environment and the business of the ocean. I'm shipping reporter Eric Priante Martin, and today we're going to focus on a bid to protect biodiversity on the high seas. Everyone who cares about shipping's environmental impact has been paying attention to a key meeting at the United Nations International Maritime Organization to figure out that body's new targets for cutting the sector's greenhouse gas footprint. But there's been another effort at the UN looking to tackle ocean industry's impact on the environment. This one focused on biodiversity. This is Rena Lee, the president of the Intergovernmental Conference on Marine Biodiversity of Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction, announcing that the text of a new treaty had been agreed after two decades of negotiations. The ship has reached the shore. The excitement in that room culminated a few weeks ago in adoption of the High Seas Treaty, described by some as the biggest treaty on the ocean environment in decades. And it covers a massive gap in ocean governance, protecting oceans and regulating the industries that utilize them in the large percentage of the planet that's outside of national jurisdictions. It's an international agreement by the UN's 193 member states that will expand protected marine areas, protect the ocean against pollution of toxic chemicals and plastics, promote sustainable management of fish stocks, and more broadly, ensure the seas are used in a responsible way. But the work is not over. It will take 60 governments to ratify the treaty before it becomes law. Even though it's taken decades to get to this point, ratification might not be as far off as some might fear. Paul Holtus is chief executive of the World Ocean Council, a nonprofit group that promotes corporate ocean responsibility. He's been involved in the High Seas Treaty negotiations for the last 10 years. The hope amongst those that have been working hard to make this happen is that, that those 60 uh, ratifications or equivalent outputs from governments will be achieved by mid-2025 when the next UN Ocean Conference takes place. I think that's a reasonable expectation. Uh, given the level of uh, sort of enthusiasm for the treaty and uh, relief from everyone that uh, final text has been uh, agreed upon and adopted. So uh, I'd say within a couple, three years, we would expect that uh, enough countries have, have ratified this, that it comes into force. Holtus has highlighted two key elements of the High Seas Treaty. One is managing biological resources in key parts of the ocean, including those marine protected areas. The other is creation of a system of environmental impact statements, the details of which are still unclear even once the treaty is ratified. His message for shipping and other ocean industries? Get engaged. These have huge implications, as we've been uh, saying for many, many years, and briefing the the, uh, ocean business community and finance community about these. And so the implications are that this creates a system whereby uh, governments can decide who gets to do what where in international waters. And this needs very active uh, involvement from the industries that are even just traversing, uh, transiting through portions of the ocean that would be considered special areas. There's a UN map created under the Convention on Biodiversity that basically lays out what areas are likely to be protected, but how those will be managed and what activities will be allowed will need to be worked out. When it comes to those environmental impact assessments, Holtus likens the process to come to regulations that follow the adoption of national laws. Once those laws are passed, the devil is often in the details of the rules and regulations that follow. 
I asked Holtes what he sees as the risks of the treaty for companies in the ocean industries. They should be worried that these specific arrangements um, don't take into account the practicalities of and the realities of operating, uh, undertaking industry economic activities in the high seas and develop uh, unreasonable, unachievable levels of constraints on, on, on responsible activity. So that's, that's a risk. So it's that whole, you know, if you're not at the table uh, situation. Uh, so that's the main risk. And that's, you know, the flip side of that is the opportunity to help ensure that uh, that risk is, has been uh, addressed by being at the table and providing your input. In shipping and other ocean industries, what the High Seas Treaty will eventually mean in concrete terms is not fully clear. Maritime lawyer Oddbjorn Slinning is partner at law firm Wickborg Rain in Norway, and I reached out to him after he put out a client note on the treaty once the text was agreed earlier this year. He told me that he doesn't want to overstate the impact of the High Seas Treaty. That's right, no juicy headlines for this shipping reporter about how this convention will deliver a blow to the industry. But there are potential impacts because the convention regulates the freedom of the seas by limiting that freedom if it, if it uh, comes into force and is, uh, is rat ratified by, by enough states. And it, it can impact uh, the, the, the route vessels are currently sailing. There may be areas in the, in the high seas that will be restricted for, for uh, human activities, including shipping, uh, fishing, of course, also, and, and also uh, potential mining. Uh, there could be restrictions imposed in areas for, for noise, which will, of course, then mean that uh, shipping uh, ships cannot uh, be there, and also for, for, um, for other activities like uh, the release of pollutants into the sea, which is, uh, of course, a huge, huge problem and as high on the agenda of the UN to, to tackle. Among its provisions, the treaty is expected to lead to restrictions on speed and fuel consumption for ships in those marine protected areas, and vessels may have to avoid some zones altogether. Fishing is likely to face restrictions as well. In shipping, Slending also raised questions about what the treaty will mean for exhaust gas scrubbers. These devices entered into wide use after the International Maritime Organization put a strict cap on sulfur emissions in 2020. Scrubbers allow ships to use high sulfur fuel oil, but while they take harmful compounds out of ships' emissions, some are then deposited into the sea. And scientists and environmentalists are concerned about how that impacts the marine environment that this treaty has been adopted to protect. One type of system, called open-loop scrubbers, uses seawater in the cleaning process and then puts it back into the ocean. Uh, when you had the, the 2020 uh, regulations uh, coming into force, there was a big debate whether uh, scrubbers should be installed or whether you should, ship owners should start to buy low sulfur fuel instead, and whether you should have so-called open-loop scrubbers or closed-loop scrubbers, and, <laughs> and that whole debate. And, and when we saw this convention, we thought, try to look into the crystal ball and see what, what may this impact on all these investments that ship owners have done in, in scrubbers. And I think for closed-loop scrubbers, I think that's, that's uh, safe. Th that will probably not be any kind of impact uh, on, on those. But for open-loop scrubbers, where, where seawater is pumped on board and, and used to, to clean the, uh, the emission gases for, for sulfur and then let back into the sea, that could be restrictions on that. There are lo lots of scientists who are really skeptical about how that open-loop scrubbers impact the environment. 
where closed-loop scrubbers still dump waste called scrubber effluent into the ocean, Slinning said that may also be affected by upcoming regulations under the High Seas Treaty. Another area where the treaty might impact shipping, fishing, or other ocean activities is noise pollution. The growing number of vessels in the world's waters have increased noise pollution significantly, and that is blamed for harmful impacts on submarine life. That could lead to requirements for shipboard systems that reduce noise. And that is also a, a, a possible reason for establishing uh, conservatory areas. If, if, if there's noise sensitive areas, you know, you have shipping activities that generate some noise and, and maybe fishing activities and mining is, of course, much more, uh, much more relevant for, for that. And that could then be areas where, where that will not be possible to conduct such, uh, such activities. One industry that will be impacted by the High Seas Treaty doesn't quite exist yet, deep sea mining. But it isn't as impacted as some might hope. While the High Seas Treaty does regulate the seabed, the Nature Conservancy Environmental Group complained, for example, that mining was exempted from some of its environmental impact assessment requirements. Like shipping and fishing, the deep sea mining sector has its own UN regulatory body, the International Seabed Authority. And this month, that body is poised to start ruling on dozens of applications for deep sea mining. Birgit Leoden is founder and chief executive, actually she calls herself Chief Mermaid, of Norway's The Ocean Opportunity Lab, or TOOL, which works to connect innovators focused on sustainable ocean industries and renewable energy. She's worried about what the emergence of a deep sea mining industry will mean for the ocean environment. As you might know, Norway has the second longest coastline of the world after Canada. Uh, and we also have a huge uh, ocean territory, which is six times, I believe, uh, larger than our land-based uh, territory. Uh, in a very, um, you know, a uh, very pristine and also very uh, vulnerable area uh, in the Arctic waters. And obviously, as our mission and tool is to work for uh, zero emission, zero waste ocean industries based on regenerative uh, mindset and, and structures, then we have a very big concern that we need to be able to make sure that we build up the new ocean industries and, and redesign the current ones in ways where future generations will be able to still increasingly taking more values and resources out of the ocean without damaging it, uh, leaving it dead. For Leoden, the High Seas Treaty stands for the notion that before industry makes an impact on ocean ecosystems, it needs more data about what that impact will be. But that data is not there in the case of deep sea mining. I think it should have a very important consequence when we look at the fact that for now, um, if we start mining today, we are still mining, we're mining in the dark. We don't know which species exist there. We don't know which of those species that might have the future cure for COVID, for cancer, for new ingredients that we need for health, uh, biomasses, etc. So um, at the current stage, at least our very clear message to the rest of the world is that before we move in and start explorations and, and start commercializing this, we need to do our homework. So we need to get going, uh, mapping, uh, collecting data, doing much more extensive research in the deep oceans than we have done per now. For Leoden, there's no rush to get started on deep sea mining. There may be lucrative minerals below the seabed 
but she pointed to estimates that it could take 15 years before it's financially viable to pull that up from below the ocean without loads of government support. And then there's the towering cost of cleaning up the environmental damage and restoring ecosystems affected by deep-sea mining, with some estimates claiming that these could be even higher than the cost of the mining itself. Just one voyage priced in Norway to complete one research exploration voyage is a minimum of like uh, $3 million just for one. And there are many, many, many needed. And then when we look at the end game, uh, who will bear the cost of the restoration after uh, a production has been in place? I think those two, in addition to technology and the way of, of collecting the data that we need, uh, these are like really big, uh, crucial uh, issues to, to find good solutions on now before we get started. Leoden is like many who want to see seabed mining put on hold. She wants her home nation of Norway to adopt a precautionary pause. Germany, Sweden and Finland are on board with that, and Canada has already done so on its own. As everything else we do in our industry, we need to act responsible because we know that if we don't, and we, if we create big destruction, then of course our ability to do business and, and continue will you know, just be less in the future. So I think you compare it to the to the early areas, uh, the early years of uh, of offshore oil and gas. If you see all of the extreme consequences that came from things we did at the early stage because we didn't know better, I mean now we are in in a century where we do know much more. We know what to do early on to make sure that we don't take risks that we shouldn't. But that's an action that will have to be taken outside of the high seas treaty which will certainly not be ratified before the seabed mining proposals are scheduled to be approved. Here's more on the environment and the business of the ocean. Shipbuilder Samsung Heavy Industries and engineering firm Black & Veatch have won a contract to help develop a floating LNG export project off Canada's west coast that is aiming for net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Western LNG, the Nishka Nation Indigenous Group, and Rockies LNG have hired the two companies for front-end engineering design of Sealism's LNG. They claim the project will have the lowest carbon emissions of any full-scale facility that exports liquefied natural gas, or LNG. But to get to net zero will also involve offsets. Music for this episode is by Stock Music on Pixabay. <laughs>